an aptronym. Ever heard the term? An aptronym is a personal name that is peculiarly suited to its owner. I have a few examples for you. How about the pro basketball player named Lonzo Ball? Basketball, ball, you get it? Okay. Or the BBC meteorologist Sarah Blizzard. Or the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. That's a great name for a sprinter, Bolt. Or the Australian tennis player Margaret Court. Or the baseball player Prince Fielder. Or the Starbucks executive Rosalind Brewer. You got it. Or how about former White House press secretary Larry Speaks? I like this one. He was a famous sanitary engineer. His name was Thomas Crapper. How about baseball pitcher John Outman or English poet William Wordsworth? That's a good name. And here's my favorite. Sue you, attorney at law. (laughs) I could go on and on. I'm sure you get the idea. Some names fit their subject perfectly. But understand, Peter is not one of them. Petros means rock. Yet the disciple of Jesus named Peter was more like shifting sand. Peter was impulsive and inconsistent and insensitive. Rather than rock-like, Peter was a picture of instability. And yet Jesus named Peter, not after what he was at the time he received the name, but after what he would become once transformed by the Savior and by the Spirit. Two events turned a shifty Simon into a powerhouse Pete. First, on the day of Pentecost, You remember a fearful Peter was infused with power from on high. Once filled with the Holy Spirit, he preached God's word with boldness. Peter received power at Pentecost and perspective at Calvary's cross. Before the cross, Peter believed in a Messiah who would reign and rule, not suffer and die. You know, Peter never felt more confused than the night his king knelt down to wash his feet. I mean, it wasn't until after the resurrection that Peter realized the path to God's glory runs through the humility of the cross. We'll reign with Jesus, but first we die to our pride and we learn to serve. You see, by the time Peter pins this epistle, that perspective had taken a firm hold on his life. This letter is a message of hope even in the midst of suffering and persecution. We're not told when 1 Peter was written, but I believe it was penned when Peter was in prison in Rome, waiting on his execution before the Caesar Nero. In chapter 5, verse 13, Peter sends greetings from those who are in Babylon. It could be that Peter was in literal Babylon. It's far more likely that he was speaking of spiritual Babylon or Rome. At the time, it was the capital of paganism and idolatry. We do know that Peter and Paul were prison mates between the years 63 and 64 A.D. 
This might explain why 1 Peter is so similar to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. They were written at the same time. The two apostles may even have swapped thoughts and notes. We also know that Peter and Paul were executed around the same time, shortly after this imprisonment. There's no doubt that when Peter wrote this letter, he knew that death was on the horizon. And yet his eyes were fixed beyond the horizon to the glories of heaven. It's safe to say if Paul was the apostle of faith and John was the apostle of love, then Peter was the apostle of hope. Peter grew rock-like when he looked beyond this life and anchored his hope in eternity. And so Peter begins, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In the book of Acts, we learn that the church was a wartime baby. The church in Jerusalem was born in the midst of persecution. Eventually, many of its believers dispersed into other parts of the world, and Peter is now writing to those spiritual refugees. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the audience who witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were from Pontius and Cappadocia and Asia, as well as Phygria and Pamphylia, two cities of Galatia. These same names are mentioned there. After Pentecost, many of these new believers probably stayed in Jerusalem to grow in their faith, but eventually they returned home. And Peter never lost touch with those saints. In fact, he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith. Of course, Peter is also writing to us. Even if you've lived your whole life in the same place, you're still a dispersed pilgrim if you're a Christian. This world is not our home. You know, today is Mother's Day, and it reminds me of the mom aboard a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. A storm was sinking the boat, but this mom exuded great calm. When the ordeal was over, the captain came up and asked the lady the secret of her strength. She stated, I've got two daughters. One lives in New York, and the other lives in heaven. I knew I'd see one of my girls in a few hours, and it didn't really matter which one. We're all just pilgrims on a journey. We're merely passing through. Well, Peter encourages these pilgrims to whom he writes. They may have given up their locality or earthly comforts to follow Jesus, but spiritual blessings transfer from place to place. And he lists those blessings. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And he mentions here the work of the Trinity in our salvation. He says we are elected by the Father. We're set aside or sanctified by the Holy Spirit and we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Literally, we've been born again. You recall the old saying, born once, die twice. Born twice, die just once. In Christ, we've been given eternal life. You know, God is a trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since God is a trinity and we're made in God's image, it's not surprising that we humans are also three in one. We're body, soul, and spirit. Every human being is like a three-stroke engine. We have three cylinders, you could say. But here's the problem. Most humans run on only two of their three cylinders. Our body is alive. Our soul, which is our mind and our emotions, are alive. But our spirit is dead. And thus people sputter. They misfire. They're not firing on all cylinders. They limp along in life. And yet when Jesus enters a person, he quickens our dead spirit. He makes us alive. He effuses us with spiritual life. We are born again, born spiritually. And we are born again, Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Italian poet Dante, in his divine comedy, he hangs a foreboding inscription over death's door. The warning reads, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope. See, death is the great spoiler. It separates lovers. It creates orphans. It slams the door on opportunity and causes vast potential to vanish. Boom! Instantly. Most of all, death chokes out hope. But we as believers in Jesus, we can look death in the face and still maintain a living hope. Our Lord has overcome death, hell, and the grave. When Jesus rolled away the stone from the mouth of the grave, he exited never to die again. He resurrected hope for all people. Through his triumph, his followers now have the hope of sharing his supernatural life. We've been born again, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Earthly riches lose their luster. Their value depreciates, their glory fades, whereas God's blessings are permanent and priceless. In fact, there is an incorruptible inheritance with your name on it reserved for you in heaven. For you yourself are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. My children used to always ask me, Daddy, will you hold this for me? Like I was some kind of coat rack or something. Would you hold this for me, Daddy? Sometimes it was their wallet or their money. Sometimes it was their baseball glove or maybe their jacket or their books or at church maybe their Bible. But it was an item they didn't want to lose. And they trusted it to their dead. And you are an item that God doesn't want to lose. So much so, he promises to keep you, to hold on to you. For we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From the beginning, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But his concept of what Messiah had come to do was transformed at Calvary's cross. Yes, one day Messiah will reign in glory, but there's a grieving that comes before the glory. There's a cross that precedes the crown. And faith has to be tried before it can be rewarded. See, our faith is like gold. The refiner, he turns up the heat. He melts the metal so he can pick out the infirmities and the impurities. Kind of feels like a trial right now we're going through, doesn't it? Where the heat's being turned up on us. Do we really trust God? Is our faith truly genuine? This is how God works in our lives. He turns up the heat of hardship. He melts down our pride and our self-sufficiency. He picks out impurities that we didn't realize were there. And how does the goldsmith know when the gold has been properly refined? I've been told it's when he can see his reflection on the surface of the metal. And likewise, Jesus knows that we've been adequately refined when a Christ-likeness surfaces in our lives. Hey, he sat by a furnace of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test. And he wanted the finest of gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems of a price untold. So he laid out gold in the burning fire, though we wanted his hand to stay. And he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright. But our eyes were so dim with tears, we saw the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bend over the fire, though unseen by us, with looks of ineffable glove. Can we think it pleases his loving heart? To cause us a moment of pain. Oh no. But we, if we, but we saw through the present loss. The bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye. With a love that is so strong and sure. And his goal did not suffer a bit more heat. Than was needed to make it pure. And I'm most intrigued by that last line. Listen again. His gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Perhaps today you're in the crucible of tribulation and trouble. And the genuineness of your faith is being tested. Sure, you'll serve God when it benefits you. Who wouldn't? But what happens to your faith in the heat of adversity? How genuine is your faith? Trust the refiner, friends. He knows just how much heat is needed to purify our faith. Peter continues in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. You know, right now our world is being turned topsy-turvy by coronavirus. It's an entity we can't see. And because we're so visually oriented, the authorities feel they need to constantly remind us of its existence. It's all we hear about. 
But this is also why Peter's writing to his friends. For as to Jesus, we can't see him or touch him or hear him. But that doesn't mean he's not there. He is. It's the fact that we're so visually oriented that that we don't realize it. It's only through faith that we can sense his presence and know his love in our hearts. Helen Keller once said, The best and most beautiful things in life cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. This is true spiritually. He says, Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is our faith. Though we don't see him, yet we still rejoice. A heart that's primed with faith will overflow with joy. Though not seen, the powerful presence of Jesus is still able to rejoice a heart and fill us up with God's glory. And then verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the New Testament speaks of salvation in different phases. When you embrace Christ as Lord, you are saved from the penalty of sin. As you grow in Christ, you're saved from the power of sin. And one day, when you enter into the glories of heaven, you'll be saved from this wicked world and the presence of sin. We're saved from its penalty, its power, and its presence. But at every stage of salvation, we're saved by grace through faith. And this is why it's so essential to continue in our faith. Faith is not a one-time possession. It's a mindset that we cultivate and grow and develop. He says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What he's saying is that the Hebrew prophets, what they said about the Messiah is exactly what the ministers of the gospel have preached about Jesus. There was no contradiction in the Old Testament and the New Testament message. The gospel of Jesus was not a man-made invention. It had been sent by God's Spirit. And then Peter adds an interesting thought. The gospel reveals truths, he says, that angels desire to look into. Don't you find that intriguing? That the gospel appeals and interests the angels? You know, it stunned the heavenly host when their eternal king humbled himself and became a man. Can you imagine that from the the incarnation from the angel's perspective? It must have horrified them when he let himself be nailed to a Roman cross. The king of the universe? Why? They must have screamed. For thousands of years now, the angels have tried to comprehend the depth of love God has for these human creatures like you and me that were made from dust. Why is God so interested in them? You know, I imagine the angels are sort of like Dr. Spock. 
They're logical. They're non-emotive Vulcan type in their, in their composition. They have a hard time grasping the divine emotion called love. But grace is even harder. Love that's undeserved is totally beyond their understanding. Why would God love creatures that are so unlovable? This is the preoccupation of the angels. And if angels spend all of their time pondering God's grace, wouldn't it be worth our while to do the same? Verse 13, he says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's another way of saying, get some focus. Get serious about what? About God's grace. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Here's another thing to get serious about. We need to be holy. Recall the word holy means to reserve or to treat as special. You know, when we think of holy objects, we imagine relics that might have a supernatural quality. We think about the Ark of the Covenant or the Shroud of Turin or maybe even the Holy Grail. These are holy objects. But any item can be made holy simply by dedicating it to God. Say I have a coffee mug that I refill every morning. And let's just say I drink from this coffee mug when I spend my time with God. I use it exclusively for that purpose. To me, it becomes a holy mug. And likewise with people. You and I aren't holy because we possess some kind of spiritual quality. We're holy because our lives are reserved for God's purposes. Look into my face and what do you see? You see a holy mug. A holy mug, that's what you see. Yes, it's just a plain old mug. But guess what? It belongs to God. That's what makes it holy. It's His mug. That's what makes anything holy. That it's been reserved for God. We need to be holy. He says in verse 17, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Christ, you've been redeemed. You need to understand the incredible value that God sees in you. You know, to us, redeemed is a religious word. It's a church word. We don't give it much thought. We rarely associate it with everyday life. But in the Roman world, it was a word that sparked instant hope. Redeemed. You see, the empire's 60 million slaves went to bed each night dreaming of their redemption. That someone they knew, or perhaps themselves, could purchase their freedom 
Just a few coins could free a Roman slave. But here he says that freedom from sin is much more costly. Freedom from sin doesn't occur through some corruptible coins, but it requires the blood of a perfect lamb, Peter says. Our redemption isn't paid with precious metals, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you are of extreme value. You have been bought with his precious blood. Verse 20, For he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The cross of Christ was in the heart of God prior to the earth's foundations. Now his love has been revealed and we've believed. And since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. God has shown us such great love. Now anyone who receives that love needs to love in return. And then verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. From the moment we're born, we start to die. This is the reality of life. A flower blooms, then it slowly begins to fade. There's a Yiddish proverb. I'll read it. A grandmother becomes feeble. Her grown daughter gives her a wooden bowl that trembling hands cannot break. The old woman dies and the bowl is discarded. But the granddaughter retrieves it. The bowl, she knows, will be needed again. We're all going to fade and eventually die. You know, scientists still don't understand the mystery of aging. Normal human cells can grow in tissue cultures and reproduce themselves for many generations. But then one day, for no apparent reason, they start to degenerate and die. It's as if the cells are pre-programmed with death. It's as if death were written by the genetic language into the fertilized egg. It's as if the human seed or cell possesses a built-in time clock, which causes it to shut down at a predetermined point in a person's life. Well, the observation of the scientist only confirms the declaration of Scripture. For human seed is corruptible. It deteriorates. It breaks down. Physically, you were born to die. But spiritually, you have been born again to live forever. For the new birth results not from corruptible seed, but from incorruptible seed. And what is that incorruptible seed? Through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Spiritual life occurs in the human heart, when the Word of God, like a seed, takes root in a repentant heart. And since the seed of God's Word abides forever, the life it produces in us is an eternal life. He says, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. One of the most powerful visuals I've ever witnessed was at a local funeral that I once attended. After preaching this very forceful sermon, the officiating pastor, he walked off the platform and he went to escort the casket up the aisle. But as he walked past the body, he, he reached over to the flowers that were adorning the top of the casket. And, and very boldly, he reached over and he grabbed one of the flower petals and he yanked it off the top of the casket. And then in dramatic fashion, he wadded it up in his clenched fist and then he threw those flower petals down on the floor of the church. And he quoted this verse, The glory of man as the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I'd suggest we all build our life on God's word, not on earthly glory. And then chapter 2 tells us, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Have you laid aside those things? I hope so. As newborn babes, we've been born again. The first stages are as a newborn babe. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now that you've been born again, as a, as a spiritual baby, you need the milk of the word. Have you ever watched a, a little baby root? You know, they just, their mouth just kind of goes for their, that mother's nourishment, that mother's milk. They just start groping and sucking and searching for its mom. Root, rooting is its one pursuit. And this is how we should seek the Lord. When it's spiritual feeding time, rather than look to worldly pleasure, we need to root for our Lord. We need to look to the things of God. We need to hunger after spiritual things. He says, coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. There's a legend associated with Solomon's temple that during its construction, the cornerstone was quarried first. But when it arrived on site, the builders didn't recognize its importance, and so they tossed it aside. It wasn't until the structure was nearly completed that they needed the cornerstone, and they realized their mistake. They raced back to the stone that they had rejected. Indeed, this is how the builders of Judaism had treated Jesus. They didn't realize that he was God's chief cornerstone, and so they rejected him. But one day, and I believe soon, the Jews will realize their mistake. They'll repent of their sin, and they'll receive Jesus again as the chosen of God, the chief cornerstone. And then verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. The Jewish temple stood on top of Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, but the New Testament temple is a spiritual house made up of living stones, the church. We don't have to meet together. We, the building is not the church. We are the church, the body of believers. And thanks to Jesus' work in our lives, thanks to his sobering effect, many of us have gone from being stoned to becoming stones. 
The Old Testament temple had limestone walls, while Jesus' temple has live stone walls. We are the building blocks of the temple he's building in the world today. And each of us plays a role in this church. God's Spirit is fitting us all together. That's why I say, don't be off the wall. Find your place on the wall. Be part of the house that Jesus is building. He says, we are also a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, the Old Testament sacrifices were the physical offerings of bulls and goats, but the New Testament sacrifices are spiritual. Romans 12 tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Here's a a sacrifice that you can present. Your body, you can give yourself to God. The author of Hebrews lists three other sacrifices. The sacrifice of praise. That's a way to give a sacrifice. Good deeds, financial sharing, our giving. He says, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We honor God when we praise Him and when we give our resources to Him. And then verse 6 tells us, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture. And here he quotes Isaiah 28 verse 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is that precious cornerstone. He's chosen, he's solid, rest on him, and you'll never regret doing so. He says, therefore, do you who believe, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, and here he quotes Psalm 118, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then Isaiah 8 verse 14 reads, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Peter concludes, They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. In two verses, Peter sums up the Jews' rejection of Jesus. And he does so in the words of their own prophets. God intended for Jesus to be the chief cornerstone the rock on which the rest of the house would rest. But Jesus is a big rock. He can't be ignored. And if you don't make him the cornerstone of your life, you'll always be stumbling over him. You'll be offended by him. That's why you need to either bow your knee to Jesus or you'll break your bones on Jesus. One or the two. And then verse 9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And of course, in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as a royal priesthood. Priests came from the tribe of Levi, kings from the lineage of Judah. There was was separation of church and state. But as Christians, the two have been made one. We are a royal priesthood. One day, we'll rule with Jesus at his right hand. Today, we're building bridges and acting as priests, trying to reconcile people to God. We're also a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, biblically speaking, prior to Christianity, There were only two types of people in the world. There were only two racial groups. There were Jews 
And then there was everyone else or the Gentiles. But in Christ, God has established a new race, a third breed. He's created a people who were not a people before, made up now of both Jews and Gentiles who have been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And who are these people? They're Christians. They're you and me. We're not black and white. We're not red and yellow. We're not male and female. We're not rich and poor. We're not old and young. We're one new people, one new racial group called out by God. We are the third breed. We are Christians. And we are a family. We are a people who were not a people, but now we have become the people of God. And rather than blend in, guess what? Our job is to stick out. We need to display God's values of love and truth. We should live out the priorities of heaven right here on earth. For he tells us in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're pilgrims on this earth, just passing through. So let's not get bogged down with worldly stuff, fleshly lusts. You know, Mom, today's Mother's Day. Mom, imagine getting all your kids cleaned up, dressed in their very best, and you're putting them in the van, you're going to take and you're going to get the Family portrait. You're going to the studio. You're going to get the family portrait made. You've worked overtime to get this done. You need a pat on the back. But on the way to the car, Junior jumps in a mud puddle. Sissy, she spills a drink on her new dress. Can't your kids just stay clean long enough to get in the car? This is what Peter is asking the church. He's saying, we're headed to heaven, guys. We've been cleaned up by the blood of Jesus. We've been cleaned up by his precious blood. Can't you stay clean? Can't you stay out of the world long enough to get in the bus? Verse 13, he says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Here's the divine right of government. God established human government for two purposes. Notice what they are. To punish evil and to encourage good. I read, read where the police in South Windsor, Connecticut, have started pulling cars over and handing out tickets which read, Your driving was great. And we appreciate it. How would you feel if you got a ticket that said your driving's great, we appreciate what you're doing? They actually are passing out $2 rewards for obeying the speed limit and for stopping at turn signals, actually stopping at the sign, you know, and wearing your seatbelt. You get a reward for wearing your seatbelt. We think of government as a tool to punish evil, and it is, but it should also be 
a tool to encourage good. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In other words, Uncle Sam could use some Christian brothers. We need to live a practical holiness that shuts up the cynic, that looks for the, out for the common good of society. This is what we've been doing for the last six weeks by honoring Governor Kemp's suggestions and doing only uh, online services. This is why we've been doing it. Because we want to... Uh, do good and look out for the greater good. Peter says, honor the king. And, and understand, when he says honor the king, that not only applies to honorable kings, but to dishonorable kings also. For remember who was the king in Peter's day. It was the emperor Nero. And hey, if a Christian can honor Nero, he can honor the people over us. Even when you don't respect the person, you can respect the position. And then verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Wow, that's a mouthful. A servant, or we could say a Christian employee should be a good employee as good as he or she can, regardless of the character of their boss. You know, God is not going to hold you responsible for how the boss behaved. He's going to hold you responsible for how you reacted to how the boss behaved. He says, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And living in a fallen world, children of God who stay true to a biblically informed conscience will often be at odds with the values of this world. Suffering for what's right and what's good is commendable. And you should expect some persecution if you intend to live for God in this fallen world. He says, for what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. I love this because I know, I know a few self-righteous, unloving Christians who get laughed at for their hypocrisy. Yet then they walk around and stick their chest out and they claim they're being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, you're not. You're getting persecuted because you're a jerk. Hey, rejoice if you're being hassled for your good conduct and faith. Repent if, it, if you're just acting snobbish or selfish. Verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, Jesus is the ultimate example on how we should handle suffering. He let the rage end with him. And if you're taking notes, you write that down. 
He let the rage end with him. Don't you understand the world we live in is busy swapping insult for insult. You get slapped at work, so you come home and what do you do? You slap the kids, you slap the wife, or you slap your husband. Then they go out and they slap the neighbor's kids. And the whole world is just plain slap happy. Everybody's slapping everybody else. You realize that's how life goes. Hatred passes from person to person. Frustration passes from person to person until it gets to the Christian. For there it should stop. For we've been called to imitate Jesus. And when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. When he was slapped, he didn't slap back. He returned love for hate. And as his disciples, so should we. See, it's the weak who have to retaliate. It takes strength to absorb the blow and transform its impact into the opposite response. Let's learn to retaliate in love. In Jesus, verse 24, himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Understand God's plan for dealing with our sin is the cross. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin were addressed on the cross. Jesus bore our sin and paid its penalty. In him, a part of us dies to sin. Its power has been broken. And his stripes ensure our healing. As long as sin is present with us, God has a means of making us whole. It's all through the cross. He says, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a beautiful image that is. You know, they say sheep are so dumb they'll follow each other off the cliff if you don't stop them. And we're like dumb sheep. I hate to say it, but we are. Constantly losing our way, going astray. Until Jesus, the good shepherd, rescued us from the brink of destruction and brought us back into the fold. Now let me close with a question. Can you name the only man-made thing in heaven? Can you name the only man-made thing in heaven? Well, the only man-made item in heaven is the scars Jesus bore in his body. We nailed Jesus to that cross. It was history's ultimate tragedy, yet God has used it to engineer the ultimate blessing. His pardon, his healing, his redemption, his new life now comes through the cross. Hey, from one dumb sheep to another, Christianity is not a bad deal. A new power and a new perspective changed Peter, and it'll change you. Trust in Jesus' work on the cross and trust in His Spirit's work in you. Father, we thank You.